All right, friends. Well, welcome back to the podcast. It is good to have you with us. And um, I'm here with Wynn Collier. And Wynn was the founding pastor of All Souls in Charlottesville in Virginia. And he now directs the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination at Western Theological Seminary. And uh, Wynn, you have got a new book coming out, a biography on Eugene Peterson on March 23rd. It's called A Burning in My Bones. And, uh, and I got a chance to read an early copy of it. And, um, I, when I read it was just so moved by, um, Eugene moved by the kind of person and pastor he was moved by the story of his life that, um, I am just really grateful to get to talk to you about him. Well, thank you, Mike. That, that's, um, really good to hear. And thank you for inviting me. Yeah. And, um, I should let everybody know that somehow, um, I got all the audio screwed up last time, and so you are graciously re-recording this with me. This is our second time recording <laughs> this. So I'm going to trust that, like, um, I'm going to have even better questions this time than last time because um, <laughs> you had so many good things to share when we recorded last time that I was really bummed. Um, but I thought maybe we'd start with this, that um, for for people who are listening who aren't familiar with Eugene Peterson, how would you sort of introduce him to them? How would you... Like, how do you let people know who Eugene is and why he's significant? Well, I can just say why he's significant to me, which is he was a, a pastor that um, in many ways gave me a picture for what that vocation could actually look like and that it was rooted in um, particular places with particular people. It was filled with love. It was deep and rich and textured. And, um, you know, in a world where the word pastor often, you know, now it, it doesn't have a good ring to it. And uh, in many, in many cases, and sometimes you want to spit after you say it, um, that, that Eugene was, was the kind of man who was worthy to hold, to hold that, that title and that, that work and be that kind of person. And, and then as a writer, he just, um, he he really honored language and he treated treated words and sentences as holy things and he he never um used his language to manipulate but to open up and i think particularly in um in the realm of of christian writing i was just reading some paragraphs last night actually um heading to bed and um and he was talking about language and about um, how how our how our words, our writing, um, uh, ought to be um, uh, embodied as a Christian. And, and I just I, I kind of closed the book and I thought we just don't have voices like this anymore. Um, mm. and, I, and I'm not sure I can even explain what I mean any better than that. Um, it's just it's it's something that's that sort of seems mostly lost these days. And, um, and then obviously many people know him because he translated the message Bible, which was one of the best selling Bibles of the past, you know, 20, 30 years. And, and then people know him in lots of other ways, public ways. And, um, but, um, those are the things that I, I would say. Yeah. Uh, and even, um, towards, uh, maybe towards the end of his life, maybe, well, after he had done the message translation, I know he, at some point, develops a relationship with Bono from U2, which you write about a bit in your book. 
And um, even the way that that came about and the way that he guarded that for me, like I felt like really endeared to him as a pastor and a public figure. Do you mind talking a little bit about um, about how his relationship with Bono came about and um, and then even the way that he uh, would talk about it or nurture it? Yeah, so Bono first encountered Eugene through the message, and I think the first thing Eugene heard about that was in a story that Bono, um, interview he did with the Rolling Stone magazine, and and he mentioned Eugene and the message, and all of a sudden, people started calling Eugene, and friends sending him clips of Rolling Stone magazine, and, you know, he was <laughs> kind of bewildered. Um, and then at some point, I don't, I think he kind of, lost i don't know i just i don't i think he just didn't still didn't really know who bono was but um at some point they asked uh bono's some of bono's people asked eugene if if he would fly to come join eugene at somewhere and and spend some time with him and and eugene was knee deep in um uh translation work with the message and and so he you know no he didn't and and um, there's this um, interview that's on actually on YouTube where he's being interviewed about this, and the interviewer says, "Eugene, you're probably the only person that would have said no to Bono. You know, it's like it's Bono." And there was everybody starts laughing in the audience, and then and then Eugene says, "But it was Isaiah." You know, <laughs> um, uh, so several years went went on, and and. Bono's uh, chaplain, who was the, the the band chaplain, reached out again to Eugene and said, "Would you would you mind coming?" And, and this time Eugene did. And um, in in the interim, Eugene, ha- I mean, uh, Bono had picked up a copy of Re- um, Reverse Thunder and mm. just really loved it. And that was his book so, on uh, Revelation. Correct. Um, you know what? Now all of a sudden, I'm I'm. I'm second guessing myself. Um, it may have been, I think it was actually run with the horses. I'm sorry, which is Jeremiah. Oh yeah. 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 Um, yeah I'm sorry. It wasn't reverse thunder. And, um, and so he wanted to, and he wanted to, he was really wanted to meet Eugene. And so Eugene went and they spent, um, when he went to a, con- a concert and in Houston and, um, you know, there's these pictures of Eugene, um, with his head over his ears, um, stage right you know um just taking it all in and uh but then spent time with him that evening they flew to um dallas i believe it was and and then had a a half a day the next day where they just spent together and you know so lots of people over the years would ask him about that he just he just wouldn't he just wouldn't talk about it because it you know first of all just everything about celebrity eugene kind of abhorred um, yeah. He thought it was dangerous, dehumanizing. Um, he didn't want to be a celebrity. He didn't want to play into that those kind of energies. So, you know, people would ask him about about Bono, and he would um, he would uh, demur. Um, even in his his journal, he it was it was very noticeable that the day he had so much private time with with Bono, um, his he just at the top of his journal just says morning with Bono and then doesn't say anything about those Mm. conversations. Um, I think there was just something that he felt, you know, he he didn't want to 
go into that. Um, and it's m- more about the friendship and later years. And yeah, but he, he was something of a, of a pastor and a friend to Bono, I think. I love that. Um, cause I think like, like you were saying that there aren't people like him, um, in the same sort of way today where, uh, there's a culture around pastors. If they are pastoring in some way, a celebrity, you know, about it on Instagram or, um, we're holding that sort of up. And even people like want to pastor people like that because they see that as a doorway to more influence and would be a sort of like means to an end. Like I get to affect more people because, because I'm pastoring Bono, Bono opens up all these other doors and, um, and to have somebody like Eugene who would um, have Bono like pursuing him and that he's kind of pushing him off and that then he's even keeping his relationship with him private um, there's something really beautiful about that. And I, I wonder if that connects at all with you talk a bit in the book about how he had a point where he wanted to shift from being a competitive pastor to being a contemplative pastor. Um, do you mind talking a little bit about sort of that shift and in, in the way that he saw those as different things? And, and even like, how did he end up making that kind of a shift? Yeah, I think, you know, some people have the perception that Eugene was this person who sort of popped out of the womb as this contemplative person who didn't have an ambitious bone in his body and, you know, was um, something like a a Protestant St. Francis from day one, you know, and that's just not, that's just not true. He, he resisted the things he resisted, the dehumanizing forces that are so prevalent in American culture, modern culture, Certainly the church world were eaten up with it. Um, not because he was aloof from it, but because he tasted the poison hmm. and, and he knew um, what it did to the human soul. And I think there was something in him that deeply longed for God that wanted to be transformed by the love of, of Christ in such a deep way that he became more human. And, and so for him, it required um, a resistance to the dehumanizing um, forces that, that are all over us. And, and to become a contemplative pastor, you know, some people think, Oh, that just means he, he liked to sit in a room with a candle and be really quiet. And it's certainly true that, I've never been around anyone in my life who was more attuned to quiet and silence than Eugene. And if you were going to enter his world, you became attuned to it too, um, which was a beautiful thing. But, you know, for Eugene, contemplation isn't just being quiet. It's, it does start with, it's, it's a posture of listening and awareness of God. Hmm. Um, and it is, um, you know, for Eugene, contemplation also is the way we move into the world. It, it becomes that something so becomes wedded to who we are and transforms us that our action in the world becomes transformed. So for, I don't think for Eugene necessarily, there was this big dichotomy between being contemplative versus being active. I think there was a, there was a distinction between a kind of frenetic action and an action that is rooted in God's presence, which is very different. Yeah, that's really good. I, I remember one of the stories that you tell in the book is he's working as an associate pastor at a church 
and a few folks come to him and say, hey, would you um, help us lead a Bible study? And he begins leading a Bible study for them. And and if I remember right, it's something like eight people are showing up to this Bible study. And the pastor finds out that he's leading this Bible study and asks him, like, how many people are coming to it? And he says, eight people. And the pastor tells him, like, well, you need to stop it because we're not paying you to only connect with eight people. Um and that, like, I grew up and really, like, cut my teeth in ministry at, in the church growth movement. And um, and we're very concerned with return on investment. Like, that uh, that conversation made a lot of sense to me because it's like, oh, that's the waters that I've been in. Um, and I think had I been in Eugene's shoes, I'd have been like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I need to not be leading eight people in a Bible study. I need to be leading eight people who are leading eight people. So that my time's going to 64 people or whatever that trying to figure out, like, how do I like multiply this thing? Um, but somehow Eugene like kept going small and it was, uh, tell me, tell me if this is accurate or not. It was in his smallness that that almost like in some ways you could say like multiplied his influence and, but he never gravitated towards the larger influence. He just continued to go small. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think that's certainly dancing around it. I think, you know, I think Eugene just fundamentally believed that everything about God that's true is relational. Hmm. That the Trinity is relationship. Um, the community of Christ in the world is relationship. Language is um, obliterated when it ceases to be relational and starts to be um manipulative right everything is relational and so for him it was merely him being attuned to god and saying um i mean he didn't he he just never asked the question is this going to work that just was not in his on his uh, whiteboard right what would have been the question instead of that instead of is this going to work what would have been yeah the thing that would have been triggering him where is god what is true? How am I to live today hmm. with the person in front of me? That's so good. And his um, his particularity around people um, seems to be so significant. I, I was thinking about uh, towards the end of his life, maybe the last public interview he gives is with Jonathan Merritt. And towards the end of the interview... Um, Merritt asked him about like there's controversy in in Peterson's denomination around same sex weddings, and Merritt asked him about that. And um, I, I'll probably get this wrong, but if I remember, he said his answer was something to the effect of like if if a woman grew up in my church and I knew that she um, was a faithful Christian and she wanted to me to perform her wedding to another woman, like I would do that for that woman. And, and that interview kind of blew up and, uh, and got him in a bit of trouble. But then I was thinking about that and maybe it got him in a bit of trouble is the wrong language, but people were, people were a bit upset about it, obviously. And then I was thinking about that interaction. And then there's another one that you talk about in the book of a friend of Eugene's who wants to be rebaptized. And you say something about that Eugene didn't believe in rebaptizing, but in that particular moment, it made sense um, to do that for his friend there. And so it feels to me like there's this like 
particularity to the way that Eugene would think about theology, that it wasn't just sort of like some esoteric idea that I'm going to make this grandiose blanket statement that's true in all times and all places, but it has to do with a, a particular um, person and place and thing that's going on here. Is that is that a fair way to think about the way he thought about theology? Y- yes. Um, so theology could never be se- separated from geography. Hmm. Um, theology could never be separated from relationship. Um, but see, even here, this is something we probably could spend the next four hours trying to think through because it's not, it's not as if he would say, well, everything is just sort of like up in the air for me to, you know, make decisions along the way. He had a strong sense of, of obedience and submission to the church, to his ordination. Um, and so, but he did have some distinctions like there is, um, there are, there is the creedal faith that is the story we've been given. Hmm. Um, this is, this is the bedrock. It's not as propositions primarily as, as the story of God in the world. That's true. Um, then, you know, he had a, a strong Bartian sense, which was the radical um, presence and action of Jesus Christ in the world that upends everything we know about history, everything we know about humanity, everything we think we know about ourselves. It is completely upended by the fact and the revelation of Jesus Christ in human form. Um, God as Jesus Christ in human form. So, but there's also this huge strain of what he would call pastoral theology, which is how do we be aware of the action of Jesus in a particular person's life right in front of us, given all these other factors. And he just had a massive capacity for ambiguity Mm -hmm. that we are immensely uncomfortable with. And when I say we, I'm going to say all of us. I'm going to say wherever you are on the political, uh, theological spectrum, most of us are still operating in the same frame, which is a a modernity frame of certainty. And we just may flip our positions or we may, you know, move into a different circle, but we're still operating in the same energy. And that's why I think so many of us have a difficulty understanding Eugene is because he just was not inside that frame. (laughs) Um, And so he was living in ways I've never encountered with any other person. He was living a life of prayer, um, attuned to the Holy Spirit, to God, and trying to be attuned to the person in front of him. And so there were times where there were things that sort of were tensions and he would just accept that tension and um, make the best choices he knew to make with the best understanding he had. And he trusted the grace of God so much that he thought God could hold us up even as pastors, if we screw it up. Um, and, and, and in a world that only sees um, the question of how can I be as, precise um 
And it wasn't that he didn't want to be precise. I mean, if you if you can't you couldn't spend any time in his works, and I mean, he worked hard to be to, to be as clear as possible. But within that is this humility that says, "I don't have all the answers. I'm trusting God, and I'm and I'm with the person in front of me, and I will do the best I know to be a pastor to this person." Hmm. It's so good. And it's so hard. And it's so like, I think you're right. Like we don't, we, we genuinely don't know how to live in that kind of ambiguity um, because we want the answer of like back to, back to Merritt's interview with him. We want the answer of like, which side are you on of this debate? And um, I wrote down a quote from your book that you said, Eugene believed that the Bible offered less clarity than we want, or at least not the kind of clarity that we want. Um. Yeah, it seems really hard for us to live in that now. And when we live in that, to not have the same kind of rootedness that Eugene had, uh, I'm not really sure what I want to ask here other than like, how was he able to maintain those two things? This like deep rootedness with also this space for lack of clarity and being able to engage almost with... um, that this is probably the wrong word, but almost with like improvisation in the moment, but an improvisation where he's not like making it up out of nowhere, but out of his like deep rootedness. Would you be able to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to try to, uh, it's, I think what's hard about it is, um, is, you know, almost anything I, I say, or that Eugene would have said to an, in, in response to a question like this in our world would have somehow been turned into a formula hmm. that this is now how you go and do that. Yes. And, and that's, that's the first, that's the most fundamental mistake. Um, this grew out of the life of a man who had spent his entire, um, you know, the past 50 years of his life, uh, cultivating an interior life that was so enriched by the living presence of Jesus Christ and what Jesus means in the immediate world, that his vocabulary, his assumptions, his starting places, um, he was so um, enriched in the story of the church. I mean, when you walk into his study, I mean, the books and the one how he had he how he had had um, imbibed um, the stories of the saints and the traditions across, you know, from the Eastern traditions to the Western traditions, to the Reformed traditions to the to I mean, he just he just had had drank that in. And and again, I don't want to make this um, sort of like a formula at all, but you just can't miss the fact that he was so removed from the forces and energies that uh, form and shape all of us. You know, he didn't watch TV. He barely ever went on the internet. He knew nothing about Twitter or Facebook. And everything was slower, deeper, um, so that I think he, you know, he would encounter what to us is a crisis or a, you know, a, a hot flare-up, and we all assume that that's, that energy is the true energy that we must respond to. 
And on some deep intuitive level, um, Eugene just knew, lived as if that those questions usually weren't the most important questions. There were other things that God was up to that were far more fundamental and that these things often are distractions. Um, and so it's because of what he was committed to, which was God, that he intuitively um, gravitated to other places. Hmm. And would this, would this kind of fall in line with you talk about that he was, um, he was interested in the need for recapturing imagination, um, yeah. which I, so I first encountered him talking about that in reverse thunder when I was, I had been brought up in the church and, and even like into my college years was very captured by dispensational premillennialism and the whole idea around that we read revelation as this like template for future events. And we're looking towards like trying to line up when are things happening and when is like, they're going to be this major war and when like, and it was a sort of like blueprint of this. And, and for me that, I began having some issues with that. And Peterson's was one of the early books I read as I was trying to reform the way that I was thinking about revelation. And one of the things that like captured me about it was revelation as this book that is reigniting Christian imagination for people as to like, what does it mean to be and to live as the people of God in this particular moment? Um, so when I'm hearing you talk about the way that he engaged in those things, it, it seems to me that maybe it's a bit in line with the way that he um, wanted us to recapture imagination. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. So, you know, when Eugene read the Bible, it, it didn't, it, it wasn't um, a book from which he primarily wasn't a book from which he draw drew wisdom or um, formed his mental framework it, it was a book that described to him and opened a gateway into the widest possible reality of human existence. So most of us, even if we're now sort of theologically astute enough to never say something like a division between secular and sacred, and we might, you know, talk about destroying that and yada, yada. The fact of the matter is most of us still internally live with some kind of framing that thinks of the Bible as like, you know, this religious book that describes things that are maybe most true or most important, but somehow we, we think that to move into the Bible's world is to sort of move into a narrower world. But Eugene would say the exact opposite. Um, it's to move into the widest possible uh, uh, spiritual, physical, human ex um, encounter. And so the imagination begins to give us the capacity to see things that with our flat, linear um, mind or our the assumptions that we carry into conversations. And, and he would just say, oh, but God's doing something far wider than that. God's up to something far deeper than that. But you have to have an imagination to see it. You have to, and it's, you know, imagination doesn't mean just making stuff up, obviously. It means, in some ways, it means releasing our addiction to control. 
Huh. So a lot, you know, a lot of those, um, like the revelation, uh, sort of frameworks that become really rigid. And a lot of that is about control that we can know exactly what's going to happen and we can gird ourselves up for it and we can make sure we're on the right side, you know, um, but to enter the world where all we have to rely on is the action of Christ and the mercy of God. And, and we live with a sense of wonder at, at where God is, is demonstrating God's love and, um, and that we have to trust God for our life and for our future. And, um, that's, that's riskier. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. And he, um, there's so many things that I don't know what to do with with him or that maybe maybe that's even the wrong way of saying it, that it just uh, statements that he would make that just challenged the way that I kind of um, interact with the world. And so um, not only some of that stuff that you're talking about, but I was also thinking of um, a, a time that you record in your book where somebody asks him if he's a pacifist and he says, uh, I want to be a pacifist, but I'm not sure if I have enough courage. And that just felt like uh, um, a knife to the heart for me of, of I went through, again, that was another one of those shifts for me where I went through this shift of like, oh, I think Jesus actually calls us to nonviolent resistance and it means all these sorts of things. But the reality of what that actually looks like to live it out, it, it's really easy to hold it as an ideology and it's a different thing to live it out. And I think it's really easy for me to talk to somebody about it as an ideology and to hear like just that simple sentence from Eugene where he's like, well, I want to be, but I'm not sure I have enough courage. Like that he was so honest in his pursuit of what he believed to be right and good. Um, yeah. Like that. It's really, really uh, his life is really, really compelling. And I, I wonder, um, I wonder last time I had asked you, and maybe I'll ask you this again in a little bit, but I'd ask you like, what's a book to, of Eugene's for people to start with. But I wonder if like getting to more of like the source material of Eugene's life, like you talked about, he was very Bartian. Like what would be, if I wanted to um, pursue some of the things that he was pursuing, like, would there be, whether it's a book or some sort of practice or like what, what would I orient myself towards? What would I start paying attention to? What would I start reading? Yeah. Well, I should probably say since I, since I'm the one that made the barking quote, it, I should also follow up and say, even with Bart, um, I mean, he read through dogmatics a couple of times and the last, um, the last work he was working on was an, an essay, uh, a, a lecture he was supposed to give at Princeton on, on Bart which he, he never did. And his son, Eric actually delivered it for him after his death. Hmm. But, um, but, but it wasn't actually many of the particular things Bart actually wrote. It wasn't like, it wasn't like um, Eugene spent any time cross-referencing his own opinions with Bart's opinions to see how they lined up or didn't. It was yeah. more, it was more Bart's way of doing theology. Huh. It was the fact that Bart took Jesus Christ very seriously in a radical way that upended everything, but that he didn't take himself very seriously at all. That Bart was kind of held things with an open hand and um, and and didn't think of himself as sort of some great, uh, you know, 
reformer in the church or something. He, he was just doing what he knew to do. And, and there was a playfulness at times about him. And, 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 and so Eugene was really drawn to that. In fact, a lot of times outside of a few big issues, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that uh, Eugene even remembered Bart's particular position on certain things. Right. Yeah. So that's just different than a lot of people who follow Bart. They're kind of like always trying to see where they fit in the scheme, you know? Yes. Um, so, um, but, so I, I guess I would say three things. Um, one is you're going to have to spend a lot of time in the Psalms. Hmm. Um, if you really want to, and this is why I'm, I'm, I, I, I think I probably will never, never know prayer the way Eugene did because I just am not immersed in the world of the Psalms like Eugene was. I mean, hmm. he memorized many of the, much of the Psalter in Hebrew, even. Um, <laughs> he had this regular rhythm of, which to us would probably f sound like almost oppressive. Like I just, I can't keep it up, you know, but for him it wasn't. And, and that's why he rarely talked about it because he hmm. didn't, he didn't, he didn't want to set his practice up as the rule for other people. Right, right. This was, this was his life, and, and it was joy to him. But it gave him a kind of fruitfulness and an understanding of prayer that is almost unparalleled. Um, because he was, he was so drinking in um, our prayer book. Um, and then I would say... Um, to pick up his uh, annotated bibliography, it's called Take and Read. Take um, and Read, okay. And it's it's basically him picking out his most, the most influential books to him in, in all these different fields and genres and um, a couple paragraphs about why these books were meaningful to him. So I think it'd be a wonderful thing to just pick and choose, you know, some and, and, and maybe with an eye to like, why, why would this have struck Eugene, you know? Mm -hmm. And then the third thing I would say is you're going to have to read a fair bit of fiction and poetry. Um, you know, um, Eugene was always reading fiction and poetry and he thought that, that those, that those writers had a whole lot to teach us and that at least in the modern project, we probably wouldn't be able to do, very good theology if we weren't um, also um, reading novelists and reading poets alongside them. Yeah. And he wasn't just, I mean, he wasn't reading like pop novelists, right? Like he was reading thoughtful, who would be some of the people he was reading in the um, fiction world? Um, Ann Tyler. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he loved Dostoevsky. I mean, Dostoevsky was really important to him. Um, he loved Wendell Berry. Yeah. Um, he, he read, I mean, he just, he read all kinds. Um, uh, he was just a voracious reader and he and Jan read a book to each other every night. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. And, yeah. You know, 30 minutes to an hour. Um, and much of the time those were novels. So, um, yeah. Um, there's all kinds. It really just depends on the season of his life. But the, yeah. the steady ones, there were, there were some Ann Tyler books where he, when he was writing his five volume spiritual theology, he, I remember him saying, I, 
a writing in his journal, like I hope that I could do for spiritual theology what Ann Tyler is doing right now for fiction. Um, there were a number of, um, you know, um, fictional writers that he would he would read and he would really like what they were doing from an art standpoint, but he would get frustrated that he thought their their view of the human would be lacking or something. And so he'd, mm-hmm. he would constantly kind of be pulling back and forth. But I would say Dostoevsky and Barry were certainly um, stayed with him for a long time. Dostoevsky even more. Okay. Um, I love that idea of like, he was less concerned with like, say Bart's specific theology and more with like the way that he did theology, um, which seems really significant in like recapturing uh, not necessarily like the particulars of what a person is producing, but like, how are they producing that? Why are they producing that? What's behind it? Um, so I kind of wonder without putting words in Eugene's mouth, like, what do you think, like, maybe we could say it this way instead of like, what would Eugene say to Christianity in America today? Maybe instead, like, what would his life, what would the way that he went about life and ministry, what would, what would sort of his way say about just kind of what we're experiencing in an overgeneralized way in Christianity in America right now. Um, I feel like I'm trying to come up with something that sounds unique or smart. Um, but I don't think I have anything. I think, I think, I think he would say what he always said, which is um, no God. God's bigger than you imagine. God is more true than you imagine. Um, to be truly human, we have to go deeper into God. Um, we're, we're losing ourselves because we're losing a vision of God. Um, don't be distracted by the, by the noise. I, I think to, particularly to um to to sort of our moment in sort of christian practice in in north america i think he would say the more he would say our addictions to the crowd and to celebrity and to um to all things power and um self inflation they 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 this has only continued and grown um you know, it's, it's, I mean, sometimes even in those of us who may be reacting to, um, you know, celebrity and a certain subculture within that's been dominant, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think even in our reaction, um, if we scratch deep enough, it's not really often because we are more deeply hungry for God. Hmm. It's, it's not that our, our heart is yearning for the Holy Trinity um, to um, expand in us and illuminate us. And it's, it's um, we're almost obsessed with what we're reacting to. Um, and I think Eugene would just say, you know, work that out as you need to. Um, but there's such a better story. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's such a bigger story. Um, God is the story here. Um, 
So the sooner we can we can let our heart be reignited by the power and presence and possibility and love and future of God, um, that's where we're heading. That's where we want to head. So good. That's so good. Um, when I am super jealous of the time that you got to spend with Eugene, um, I'm grateful that you got to do that though, and that you are putting that you put that into a book um, that I genuinely am excited for uh, it to get into the hands of a whole lot of people. So it comes out March 23rd, A Burning in My Bones, um, a biography of Eugene Peterson by Wynn Collier. Wynn, uh, thanks for hanging out today. Thanks again for re-recording this. Super gracious of you. I appreciate appreciate you, and I'm really grateful for what you're putting out into the world. Well, thank you, Mike. It's, it was better the second time. <laughs> thanks, man. <laughs>